Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 180 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we talked about DDoS attacks and practical ways for you to learn more about them and to protect yourself. For change, this week we're going to change up our approach and feature Tom and one of his favorite topics. And it's a good one. Here's a hint. It has something to do with change. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? I see what you did there. Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be talking about change management and some of the current practices that can make a difference when you want to help change user behavior in your organization. In our second segment, we'll be taking and talking a little bit about contract automation. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, we're talking about change management. This is something that I think probably doesn't get enough, uh, maybe or even a lot of attention in the legal industry. But I think it's something that organizations and other industries have used very successfully in order to influence employees to change behavior, to change cultures in all sorts of different ways. I know we're going to be talking primarily about technology today, but but this is something and part of what I do, not all of what I do for companies on a regular basis. And, and I'll say it's on a small scale. It's not on some of the larger scale that we may be talking about today. So we're going to change the format a bit. And I think Dennis is going to ask me some questions about kind of what I do and what I, what I see change management being like for lawyers. But I know, Dennis, that uh, you've got some thoughts on this that you want want to get us started. So uh, where do you want to begin? Well, I've been thinking a lot lately, and I think a lot of people feel this too, that sense of the accelerating pace of change. And usually you associate that with technology, but it sort of seems like it's everywhere. There's all kinds of change happening, and, and you always feel you're sort of reacting to changes that are placed on you that are sort of appear in, in front of you. So the whole notion that there is something called change management that can kind of help you get through periods of change, I, I think is is uh, very attractive for that reason alone. And I think it focuses sort of more so than we usually do on the, on the human side of, of technology and organizations. So Tom, I guess that the basic question is, is what do we mean when we say change management? Well, I think when you talk about that we're you know, going through a lot of change now, change management is, is, I think, a broader concept than that. And it's not just about addressing or reacting to change that we might feel uh, with technology or broad adoption of technology tools and, and, and new things coming out. You know, if I go to the basic dictionary definition of change management, it gives a very unsatisfying answer, which is that change management is the management of change and development within a business or similar organization. I think probably a better way to define it 
is to say your business has to take a new direction or you have to alter a behavior that is bad for the company. And the fact of the matter is, is that over time, a law firm, a company, any business begins to develop behaviors that are part of its culture. And from time to time, there are behaviors or ways of doing things that for whatever reason, the company decides need to be shaken up or need to be changed, whether that means we're going to realize uh, uh, more money for the bottom line for the company, it's going to help us make more money, or it's going to help in a softer way. It's going to make people more productive. It's going to make people feel better about what the company does. Uh, It's all about modifying the culture of an organization by changing the behavior of the users. And I think it, it has at its very base the fact that for most people, change is hard. And that's why I think, and one of the reasons why we want to talk about it today is that you and I have seen many times where new technologies get rolled out uh, at law firms or for lawyers and never get used, uh, or aren't or people firms wonder why was it a failure? Why didn't it work as well as it should have? And I would argue that the primary reason for that is that that the process of change was not managed appropriately, and uh, I mean. That's kind of a, a broad look at it. I, I think we're going to get into more what that looks like. But um, overall, change management is about dealing with changing behavior in some way at your company or firm. Well, so change management, how does that differ from project management and maybe some of the, the other managements? I mean, is there? I, I guess there's, there can't really be something like the change management tool, like a project management tool that you just plug into. So, so how would you say it differs from some of the other process managements that we see? Well, in one respect, it is a process that needs to be managed. But by the same token, it's not something that um, you can just point a tool at it and manage it. You know, it's more of a discipline that has multiple parts that are part of it. And really, if we're looking at it correctly, it takes into account probably four or five different components to it. So, uh, you know, the first component of change management is the idea that there is the awareness uh, of the need for change that somehow, somewhere you decide, and let's use technology, we, we realize that we're not being as effective as we can, and so we need to implement an online billing system, or we need to ma- implement case management software, and there is a general awareness of that need for change. To be successful, there then needs to be that desire to participate in the change and support it. And so there's that factor that, that goes on there. We'll talk a little bit more about how that happens later. Um, the next part is, is the part that we all associate with, with change, which is the knowledge uh, on how to change. So that's the training that we get, uh, how to use the case management tool, how to use the online billing and all of that. But that's really a small part. And you know, you've got to make sure that there's that awareness and that desire first for the change before you can even have the knowledge in. And then following the knowledge, it's not just, you know, let's give them the knowledge and and we're done and everything's okay. Um, It's the ability to actually implement those behaviors and those required skills to master the change. So it's not just knowledge of how to use the case management tool. It's actually using the case management tool 
And then it really needs to become baked in. It's got to be part of the culture at that point in time. So there's got to be reinforcement over time. So I use that as an example to show that it's really more of a discipline. It's not something that, I mean, there are tools that you can use to manage the process along the way, but there's not a, you just can't go online and say, find me a change management tool. It's more of a people process and less of a technology process. So, I mean, you gave sort of the five parts there, and it does feel like there is discipline to it. And, and, and a methodology of or an overarching methodology. So you obviously learned this. So how, how do you learn change management? Well, I think that change management is something that, I mean, certainly there are books on it. You can go and take a look at it. I just finished reading a book on lean change management. So there is, a, if you're familiar with the whole lean method of, of development and, and lean Six Sigma and agile development, there is the idea of lean change management, which is coming in and finding different approaches to change management. Uh, so there's lots of books out there, lots of Harvard Business Review articles and books and uh, things on change management come out all the time on, on the HBR website um, or in other publications that they have. And I would imagine that there are courses that you can take. And honestly, I probably should have taken a look to see that this, this is something that you can probably learn quite a lot about. Change management, uh, some companies and some law firms have change management departments that actually manage things. Sometimes that's the training department. It's probably too simple to just trust it to a training department, but a number of the organizations that I've worked for have had dedicated change management groups. The majority, though, do not. And so I think what that means is is that it doesn't necessarily have to be a certain skill set uh, in order to be good at change management. It's really understanding the concepts and putting the right pieces together in order to make it effective. And so it's you don't have to be a, quote, expert or a ninja or a black belt or whatever at, uh, at change management. It's really understanding the concepts and understanding how they fit into your organization or your law firm to help make them work. So I know that for change management to work, everybody really has to be involved and be sold on it, um, you know, and, and participate. But is it something that you can do on your own or do you need a specialist? Do you just go out and hire a change manager or what would it take to kind of get yourself started in, in a more disciplined way? Well, I don't think that it's you need to have a go out and hire a specialist to do this. Uh, if I look at the way that we do change management in our small way, what my company specializes in doing is helping organizations implement better records management or information governance practices. For example, we help them deal with taking care of their email and making sure that email is retained in accordance with a company's retention schedule. If you know, we, you've heard me on many occasions talk, and you too, Dennis, have talked about how uh, email is something that uh, people view as the last big uh, silo of their information. They're never getting rid of that. It's a very personal thing for them, and they don't want to get rid of it. Um, so there's a change involved there in making sure that they uh, you know, feel comfortable to make that change and understand that it's really not their information. It's the company's information, and that it's okay to get rid of email that they really don't need to keep for business reasons. And so what that really starts out with is just the ability to communicate and go out there and 
communicate with users and say, here's the problem that we have, and here's what we've decided to do to address that problem, and you're a valued member of the team, and we need your help in addressing the problem, and here's how we're going to change things, and here's how this change is going to be better for you. That's a very simple, basic way of looking at change management is, one, combining good and frequent communications. Uh, you don't want to leave the user out. You don't want to surprise them with a change. You want to make sure they're, f- they're ready for it and they're prepared for it. But then following that up with sufficient information so that they feel like they have what we call that knowledge to be able to actually make the change. That's really, a, a, you know, if you see those kind of five principles of change management that I talked about, it's only a small part of it, but it's something that I think any company or any lawyer or any law firm can easily do without hiring a specialist or hiring a consultant to do that sort of thing. You just have to understand. I mean, I think lawyers better than many professions understand the value of good communication. It's really about communication and imparting knowledge to people. That's a huge chunk of a basic change management structure. Does change management differ when you, you take the approach that you're fixing a problem versus, say, you're, you're trying to move to the next level? Is, does your approach differ or is there a consistency about change management that kind of works through no matter what the situation or the move or the direction that you're going? I don't think it really changes in that respect because I think that the end goal is the same. We're trying to get to a better place and whether that's we were in a bad place because there was a problem that needed to be fixed or we're in a better place now because we came from a place that we needed to graduate to a higher level. Um, it's it's always what is the, the end result that we plan to get to and why is it better? And, and I think that, that it, again, it's coming back and saying, are we aware that there's a need for a change no matter what is causing the need? Um, once that awareness is there, it doesn't matter what's causing it. People will accept it and uh, and understand it. And in the research I did, everything said culture, culture, culture. The role of culture is, is vital. And in fact, in some ways, it, it almost seems like change management is culture management. But uh, what's your thoughts on, on the cultural aspect? No, it's totally culture. And, and that's the, I mean, that's really the biggest, the, the biggest issue because frankly, it's the culture that you're trying to change. When I, if I use email as the example, um, companies develop a culture of keeping everything forever. And so when you change the behavior, you're changing the culture and the culture is one of keeping everything. And we have, we want to hoard all of our documents. Um, but that's, that's really the last thing that gets changed. That's the, you know, you know that your change management has been successful when the culture has been changed for the better. So you can't look at it as the first thing. You have to look at it as the last thing that gets changed. So when you think about some of the things you've been in, involved in, I mean, what when you get the sense that really good change management is happening, what does that look like to you? So... To me, I would say that there are a couple of a couple of good steps to good change management. The first is um, when you un- have that awareness that a change is necessary. It's important to build 
urgency, to create urgency around the change. It's not just a nice to have. This is a must have. We need to do this as an organization if we're going to fix this problem, if we're going to move to the next level, if we're going to be more productive, if we're going to make more money. There has to be an urgency because if people don't feel the urgency, um, they'll just say, this is just one more thing that's keeping me from doing my job every day. So you've got to feel the urgency. The second thing that's important is you've got to have a powerful coalition. And that coalition takes a couple of different steps. The first is you've got to have leaders at the top who support the change. If it's the CEO, if it's the head of the organization, the managing partner, then that's one thing. But it's got to be someone who the users will go, okay. Uh, and, and that person says, we at the top take it seriously. We expect you to take it seriously. Um, we're all in on this and we need you to be all in on this as well. So top-down support is incredibly important. But in addition to that top-down support, there has to be bottom-up, I guess we'll call them, um, and I in the literature calls them change agents. So find the people in the organization who are motivated to learn. Help them become your change agents because once that other employees see that their colleagues are motivated to support that change, it will help reduce that resistance to change. So it's just spreading the gospel throughout the organization through these champions or change agents. Once you've got that coalition, once you've got folks at the top who are willing to do stuff, you've got the people at the bottom who are building support um, amongst the employees, you create a vision for that change. So what is that change going to look like? What do we see happening at the end of this? But then you've got to appropriately communicate that vision. And like I said, it's got to come often, but not so often that people get beat over the head with it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be communicated well enough so that everyone in the company is aware of it, that it's communicated in a way that does not seem like a mandate, that is effectively communicated to where people feel empowered and excited and enthusiastic about making that particular change. You want to make sure that you remove all the obstacles. That's part of the training is helping them understand what's going to happen, but make it easy for them to adopt the change. You can't make it hard. You can't just throw it at them and expect them to do it. It's also, I think, another really important step is to create short-term wins. You know, as you are developing uh, and moving through it, make sure that, you know, if you're rolling something out that, that you can say, hey, here's this one step. You've gotten this far. You've got a win that we can celebrate. Short-term wins and low-hanging fruit is always good and always positive to reinforce the people who are making Making that change, um, and then finally, it's building on the change. It's it's uh, not only are you we talked about earlier that you're reinforcing everybody to sustain that, but it's really building on it. And the building on it really, you know, uh, helps you to anchor that change in corporate culture. You know, once the people have incorporated the changes into the way that they're doing things then those new processes just become the way we work. That's how we do it. We do things here. They're no longer consciously applying new practices. They just do it. That's what we talk to people about email is that once you learn how to deal with the new way of managing your email, it becomes second nature after a while, and you're not even thinking about it. It just happens. And that's why the culture shift comes last. It doesn't come first. You've got to get through all those steps to do that. So if I were designing kind of the ideal way that it would happen, those would be kind of the primary things that you would want to go right. I realize it's a bunch of steps, but it, change is not an easy thing. Thing to happen, especially if it's a big change you want to make. Okay, so I have three things that I want to touch on. So you might want to take notes. And, okay. So I want to talk about 
road mapping. So do you like map out for everybody the, the path that's going to happen? Second thing is who takes ownership and how do you determine who takes ownership of the change in different aspects of it? And then the third thing, which I think is especially interesting, is dealing with inertia or dealing with troublemakers, the people who just don't want to see the change. Yeah. So road mapping is something that definitely happens. It's if you if you don't develop a good plan for how your change is going to roll out, you won't be able to see what's coming. So it pays to have a good project plan. It, it pays to have a core team um, that's committed to, to rolling it all out. And, and creating a roadmap is really important to understand where you are and where you need to be that helps give you an understanding of what needs to get done um, along the way. In terms of who owns it, in the law firm, traditionally, uh, the ownership has been somewhere in between the training department and communications, but sometimes those are all the same people. Uh, in smaller firms, that's going to be the lawyers who, who own this process. You know, it's the people who can take ownership of understanding the need for the change and uh, working with at the administrators to craft the right communications and the right training materials. What we typically find in the organizations we work with is it becomes sort of a multifunctional group and, and a cross-functional group of people from legal and people from IT and people from HR who are skilled in developing communications and training materials. And so it's co-owned. It's not just owned by one person or one group. Um, it's the people who can deliver the right tool for the right part of the process. So depending on your firm, that's going to be, that that may be a, a bunch of different people who do that. Um, and then dealing with troublemakers, you know, that's really the hardest part. And they're always going to be troublemakers. You know, what you do is it's hard to, you're always going to have a number of people who just decide not to follow it. And, you know, to a certain extent, there is, uh, I guess I would call a percentage of acceptable losses that would be uh, that the companies and law firms have to be prepared to accept. When it comes to the idea of the email policy that I've been talking about as this example, one of the things that we're able to do is IT is able to monitor how people are using email. And so if they find that people are not actually taking to the change and aren't using it, then people can go have a conversation. Now, that's kind of draconian. It's kind of a big brother approach of looking at it. But um, it's also, we, I, I will also say that in companies that have decided to do it, once somebody either gets talked to or singled out, that behavior changes. Now, I, I don't like to necessarily have that approach to compliance or getting people to do things. But I guess I use this as an example to say that there are a number of approaches that work with this. And one of the things that uh, I, I've been reading about with change management is that that resistance to change is not just necessarily because they don't agree with it or they don't want to do it. It's because they have something that's conflicting in their psychology or conflicting in the way that they do their job that is setting up a competing change that hurts them. And so sometimes trying to find out what that is and what's going on inside that person that's, uh, you know, uh, making them resistant uh, can really help design uh, a way to solve it and help them become more comfortable with the change. It's such a rich area of, of people dynamics that I, oh, totally I think is. It, yes. that you, you learn all sorts of different things. So I, I would say that if I or one of our listeners wanted to get started in, in change management, what suggestions might you have? 
Well, like I said, go out and just go to Amazon or go to Harvard Business Review and find some books on change management. Learn about the subject. There are, I would argue, dozens of books on change management out there. Learn a little bit about it. I'll be brutally frank and honest here that that there there may be organizations out there that offer certifications. Uh, if there are, I'll do some research and post them in the show notes. But um, I mean, I I think just going out and finding some some books from reputable publishers, like I said, Harvard Business Review has. Has a um, has a book on Amazon uh, that I think they call the ten best written materials on change management, um, and it's ten bite-sized, easy to digest issues on change management that really help understand the process. But it's also really about understanding how to work with individuals in. Your company. It's understanding how to communicate a message across to a wide number of people and helping all of those people who all may and perceive change in a different way, help them get that message. So there's a little bit of it that's innate qualities that's, that people in your firm are hopefully going to have. And then some of it is just really learning. Learning the process helps uh, a long way with that. So a few of your best tips to wrap things up? So really the best tip is to be able to be good at change, you have to understand the perspective of the people who are going to be affected by the change. Because no matter how trivial the change you're going to implement and how, how trivial you think it may be or how minor or unimportant, it can have a tremendous effect on the person who's being asked to change. And so my number one tip is going to be always think about what they may feel about the change. And I'm pretty sure that that will help. Well, that's what I try to do when I look at email is, is that that will help you address how to overcome those feelings or to make sure that when the change does come, uh, they are more likely and receptive to making that change rather than to fighting against it. All right, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Tom got to talk about one of his favorite topics, so this segment will focus on one of my longtime favorite topics, contract automation, which is a subset of document assembly. I saw a really interesting post on the Xari blog, that's E-X-A-R-I, about the rise of contract automation by Bill Hewitt. Xari CEO. It's a short post, and that gave me a lot to think about. Bill uses the release of, of Vinny Merchandani's uh, new book, which is called Silicon Collars, as, as the basis for his post. As a longtime reader of Vinny's blog, I can't wait to read the book, and it's on my Kindle app right now. So Bill's post touches on contract certainty through automation, virtual contracting, smart contracting, and a few other things that I think are important these days. So I've long been intrigued by the way that document assembly and automation can drive consistency, quality, and efficiency and reduce legal risk. In this segment, 
uh, we get to play one of our favorite games. Dennis gets all excited about something and asks Tom if he is excited as well or whether Tom needs to bring me back to reality. Well, I'm not going to bring you back to reality, but I'm going to ask you to kind of defend the premise here for a little bit, which is, you know, the blog post talks about the idea of contract automation, uh, which recognizes within the blog post that that at least right now there is still a need for legal review of contracts, at least at some level. And I think that's where I have trouble wrapping my mind around the whole concept, which is I'm all in on automating the creation of contracts and taking that out, taking large pieces of that out of the hands of the attorney from having to maybe put in wrong pieces or analyzing the risk wrong or missing things in a contract that they shouldn't. Um, But I'm still not completely sold on the idea that a contract system can be fully automated, that you basically say, okay, here are my terms, boom, do it. And I can just spit that out and automatically send it to the other side and and it's ready to go. I still feel the need to have eyes on it to make sure that there's not something in it that needs to be tweaked with a lawyer's mind. Am I totally wrong about that? No, I I think that it it goes back to that that old notion of, uh, you know, custom versus commodity, because I I think that there's going to be certain types of contracts that are so sophisticated um, and so complex that the idea that you automate the whole contract won't make sense. I think there's a whole range of things from, you know, residential real estate sales, you know, the normal apartment leases. I mean, you can run sales contracts of certain types, you know, those sorts of things. You can imagine that it's it would be pretty straightforward to do a lot of automation and you're going to be within, you're going to be pretty close to what people want. There's also examples of the open source licenses, the Creative Commons licenses and other things where you're starting to say, well, people can choose contracts that apply to them. So I think there's some interesting things out there in the future in the the area of of smart contracting. But I think one of the things that that I found interesting about this post is that sometimes people say, well, I'm looking to automate for certain efficiencies or to, to take lawyers out of processes. I usually say I want to take lawyers out of processes they don't need to be in. But that element that I've always liked about this is that rather that so many lawyers use the last contract they use to mark up. And when you go to automation, you get this huge benefit of not making the mistakes that you do, not putting in terms that were unique to the last one that you marked up, but starting from a, a, a really solid template uh, that's, that's customized through the automation and get you consistent results that you can build more intelligence into, that you can train people to work with better, that you can offload certain types of drafting, and you just get, it's just better work product. Um, obviously, it takes less time, so there's tons of benefit there. So I think that's what got me interested in that. I'm all, So I'm always intrigued of what's happening in the world, document assembly, and whether we call it uh, document assembly or contract automation. I think this post I liked because it, it helped me kind of rethink 
think, how that looks. And then if we were going on to something that's a more automated system of contracting, I think if we kind of slice the world of contracts in, in some different ways and look at that sort of commodity versus custom and see that the role of the, the lawyer is, has uh, much more value in, the, in what I'll call the custom or the more complex world, I think we're moving towards some interesting times with the tools that are now available. I totally agree. I'm excited by the prospect. I will only say that I believe that it's going to take a whole lot of change management for a lot of lawyers to get there. Nicely done. Yes. Now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So the new toy in my home this week is Google Home, and it is Google's uh, competitor with the Amazon Echo. It is, uh, instead of the tall black cylinder of the Amazon Echo, it is a shorter, um, much more appealing device that look people have compared to kind of an oversized air freshener. It is a uh, fairly decent speaker in it, and it is designed to connect to your Google account, uh, and you can talk to it, and it, it knows lots of things about you, because if you, if you happen to be plugged into the Google universe, um, it will be able to keep track of all the stuff that's on Google. I will say it does not have quite the integrations that the Echo has. It does not have all of the capabilities that the Echo has, although, frankly, there are a lot of questions you can ask Google Home that it knows that the Echo doesn't know. Um, I'm having a lot of fun trying it out. Uh, it is cheaper than the Echo. It's only $129 and uh, it's not just available at Amazon. You can get it at Best Buy or Walmart or stores like that. So if you're interested in a, in a new assistant to play music for you or get information or and you happen to be you know into the Google universe of, uh, of your Gmail and, and other things, the Google Home is definitely worth a try. Wait, now how, how do you keep your Echo and your Google Home from fighting or vying for your attention? I keep them in separate parts of the house, so they, they, they never even know that the other one exists. Nice. So my parting shot is a book I just read by Ken Siegel. It's called Think Simple. He worked with Apple over the years and was involved in some important decisions and important marketing decisions, especially advertising. I like this book because it seems like I spend more and more time these days trying to take really complex ideas and topics and to to simplify them and put them into language that everybody can understand and that's really difficult it's a really difficult thing so so this book gives you an, a number of strategies both in terms of design and explanation and in approaches to technology and other things to to help you really think through how to make things simple and to implement simplicity in in a lot of things that you're doing so uh, I T thoroughly enjoyed the book and, and highly recommended it again. Uh, it's called uh, Think Simple by, by Ken Siegel. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, please email us. Uh, we're at tkmreport at gmail.com, or you can send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile, and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. 
Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.